You're listening to episode number 14 of the Boys Build Better podcast. Today, we're talking about identifying and living with dyslexia. Welcome to the Boys Build Better podcast. I'm Jessica, a mom of three boys who is just trying to do things better. I'm coming to you from Fort Collins, Colorado, where I live with my husband, our boys, and a whole lot of four-legged friends. I'm here to share my thoughts on raising boys in today's world, find answers to your parenting questions, and chat with experts about building happy, healthy boys. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We, I have got a very exciting episode for you today. We're talking about dyslexia. I'm interviewing Lindsay Terry Lloyd of Climb Consulting, and she has a lot of wonderful information about identifying and living with dyslexia, including how prevalent it is. So let's cut on over to the interview. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well. How are you guys getting back into the routine after the holidays? Yeah, it's always so nice to go away. And then we actually went to Tahoe for a little bit over the break. And then it's, I actually really like coming back to and getting back into the routine. It's a little jarring at first, but I like a routine, so it's good for me. (laughs) I think we are in the same boat. We went on vacation. Um, We went on a Caribbean cruise and we just got back and... Those first couple of days are kind of shocking to get back into the routine, but I, I agree <laughs> yes. with you. And I my Christmas decorations are still up because we we left quite soon after Christmas, and now I'm looking forward to putting all of those away, and everything is clean and fresh. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that as well, <laughs> Get or, getting back organized. Right. So as a little icebreaker, since it is the beginning of the year, do you, do you have any resolutions or do you guys have any traditions around the beginning of the year? So um, that is a great question for my family because my husband particularly, and now he's gotten all of us on board, but he's super into goals. So every year, and his birthday is January 1st. So every year we sit down as a family and write out goals and um, for the next year. And then the, the following year, we look back and see what we achieved and didn't achieve. And um, so we have like different uh, areas of our life, like kids, career, service, community, um, that we kind of write our goals about. And um, I won't go into all them. That would take way too long. But um, I think one, one goal that I have for sure is with uh, my nonprofit climb, I would love to just reach more children um, and help them with early literacy. So that's one of the big goals I have for this upcoming year. And that's probably a good transition into the next question. So for people who (laughs) don't know you, um, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. So, um, I graduated from the university of Southern California, go Trojans um, (laughs) in 2000. And then, um, I had a BA in psychology there, and then I went on to get my master's uh, in counseling psychology from the University of San Francisco. Um, After my master's, I worked with children um, in a center uh, with children who had been severely emotionally or physically abused and had been taken away from their parents by Child Protective Services. And I also worked as a counselor at elementary schools throughout San Francisco, um, And, uh, in the years that followed, I had 
three children and uh, I chose to stay at home with them, which has definitely been a huge learning experience as well. Um, And now that my children are all in school full time, my youngest is my son and he is in second grade. And now that they're all in school full time, um, I've started a nonprofit to help uh, students and families whose children are having trouble in um, areas of literacy and language processing. Um, so now with the nonprofit, I assess for language processing difficulties and I consult parents to help with evaluations and diagnosis and preserving confidence and helping them with accommodations at mainstream schools. And then I also have a, um, I have a mentor-based literacy program to help the youngest um, of our elementary school students who are struggling with early literacy and reading. Which seems like a great, I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of experience leading up to that, but can you tell me a little bit more about how CLIMB Consulting came about? Like how all of those things kind of pieced together and... Yeah, it was actually a really natural process. We um, So as I mentioned, I have a little bit of a history in my education with psychology. And then um, my children were all, all three of them, uh, diagnosed with dyslexia. Uh, all, each of them, well, my two girls were diagnosed when they were in first grade. So my oldest is now in seventh and my second is in sixth and they were both diagnosed in first grade. And then my son, uh, because we really knew what to look for was diagnosed before he was in kindergarten. Um, so going through that process with my own family really inspired climb. Um, I just saw the change in my oldest daughter in particular, when she went from preschool to kindergarten and how she just went from this completely spirited, outgoing, no reservations kind of a child, um, a total leader to someone who was very, very unsure and anxious. And in first grade, her anxiety just got worse. And so uh, there was a lot of red flags just in her personality. But a lot of the teachers and were saying, oh, she's okay. It's, you know, it's probably fine and just wait. And But we got her diagnosed in first grade and um, and she was dyslexic. So uh, a couple months later, my second daughter, we noticed things. She was different in personality, but similar in academics. So we got her assessed and she was also dyslexic. And I just was on a mission after that to learn everything I could about dyslexia. And I went to a ton of trainings and I got certified in um, assessing for language processing difficulties uh, with a this thing called the Slingerland method. And I learned a lot about the psychological trauma that happens to these children when they're young. And so with my background in psychology and my personal experience, I just really felt like I could offer some help to other families and children who were going through the same thing. I think that's fabulous. Uh, But I'm super interested in the fact that all three of your kids are dyslexic. So that makes me think, is there a hereditary component? I mean, if you're dyslexic and you're having kids, is that something you should be on the lookout for? Absolutely. So it is definitely genetic. It definitely runs in families. It doesn't necessarily have to be as abundant as it is in our family. My husband is uh, dyslexic and grew up in South Africa, never knowing that he was, but always struggling 
severely with reading. And, um, and then as my children were diagnosed, he realized and found out that he was also dyslexic. There's a good chance that I have some semblance of dyslexia. Um, ours is definitely, as I said, an extreme case, but, uh, if you have a dyslexic child and you look at the lineage of your family, it is very likely that you're going to find an aunt or a grandmother or a cousin or somebody who had a lot of trouble with reading and language when they were young. And then probably didn't even know it at the time, right? Right. Because, uh, you know, now there's still a problem with um, you know, diagnosis. There's a lot of kids who go undiagnosed and unidentified, but you know, when we were growing up and especially before that, it was, it was terrible. No one was diagnosed and they just all were, you know, tossed aside as kind of not smart enough. Hmm. Well, you had mentioned something, uh, when you were just kind of initially talking about climb about one of your goals of preserving confidence. And so just kind of with your own story and going through the diagnosis with three kids, I can imagine, I mean, it led you to find out all the information you can and start this nonprofit. But I would imagine that that initial diagnosis could be really stressful. So can you tell me more about kind of what you went through when your first child was diagnosed, maybe, or what she went through, or just kind of the stress that put on your family? Yeah, so um, Natalie is my oldest, and she is kind of a type A personality and just wants everything to be perfect and wants everything to be right. So it was actually before her diagnosis that was the most stressful part because she was so upset over... um, everything that happened at school. She, like I said, in preschool was just so vivacious and full of energy. And then kindergarten came and this reading started and the reading group started and she knew she was in the lowest reading group. And she would come home saying, mommy, I'm the worst in the class. I don't know why I can't do any of this. And I just thought, oh, she's being, you know, she's dramatic and she's, you know, and so at first I kind of brushed it aside, but then it just got worse and worse. And in first grade, they'd have spelling tests on Friday and she would just writhe on the floor on Thursday nights with, I have a stomach ache. I can't go to school tomorrow because, you know, I have the spelling test and I don't think I can do it. And, you know, she just, it was so abnormal. And, um, so actually the diagnosis for us was a relief in some ways because, it controlled it for us. It allowed us to kind of make a plan for her and it allowed us to understand what she'd been going through better and to be a little more patient with her. Um, and so with that diagnosis, we were able to kind of contain it in some ways, which was really helpful. And then, and then when my other two were diagnosed, it obviously made it easier because we knew a little bit more of, of what steps to take and what to do. But, um, but the diagnosis actually was the easier part. I mean, I wouldn't say easy, but it would, at least we had a plan of action to move forward. So I guess it gave you the opportunity to kind of name all of those stressors instead of continuing to worry about why, right? Yes, and to have an answer to, to know that like, that if I looked hard enough and if I, if I did enough research that I knew how to deal with those stressors. So, um, you know, before I just felt so confused. I was like, I don't know why she's so upset and, um, feeling so down on herself. So it was actually helpful, especially understanding that dyslexia has nothing to do with intelligence sure. and understanding that there's a lot of positive sides to this learning difference. Um, that was really helpful too, because I could, I could focus on those and concentrate on those just as much as we could kind of try and address the deficits. 
Well, and you had mentioned again a little bit about finding out more information. And and in a previous life of mine, I worked in schools as a teacher and with special ed students. And so I just kind of want to know, like, when you got this diagnosis, I'm assuming it was like five or six years ago now, given her age or, and, um, did you find that there was enough information out there? Did you have enough resources or people to look to help for? Um, not at all. So our resource group at our, the resource team at our school was wonderful. And they were, they gave us the name of a, of a person who does this thing called a Slingerland assessment, which is what, um, I can now do. But, um, and so we went there and we got, uh, Natalie assessed when they came back that she had language processing difficulties, which is basically dyslexia, but it's not an official dyslexia diagnosis. Um, and then, and then after, and then we, followed that up with a full psychological education evaluation and got more documents and more paperwork and, um, another, an official diagnosis. And then we left with, um, we left with some documents and a diagnosis, but that's it. And so those two wonderful evaluators, they were great, but they were our only connection to the dyslexia world. And we left with kind of, okay, what do we do now? Um, so navigating the next steps was difficult. Like what kind of tutoring did they need? Did she need to go to a special school? How do I support her confidence and her emotional state? Like how do I continue to support her being resilient? And, um, so a huge part of climb has been talking to parents and talking them through these issues because every, every family is different. Some families might want their child to go to a special school and others might not. And it just depends on the child and it depends on the family. It's definitely not a one size fits all solution for everybody. Um, but it definitely helps to have someone that you can talk through with it. So that was another part that was really important to me about Klein that parents felt like they had an advocate in me and that they had someone who they could ask questions to who had been through it, um, not once or twice, but three times uh, with three different children who needed three different um, things. So three different avenues and paths. So, uh, no, I did not have enough resources. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I guess it makes sense that that you wind up with the diagnosis and that is probably really helpful. But then where do you go from there? Uh, yes. So it's certainly great to have somebody to be able to contact with to get that information. Yes, for sure. Well, so let's move a little bit from your story and and kind of use your expertise to help listeners out there who may um, be concerned about their own children and um, to just kind of know what to look for. So before we kind of get to maybe some red flags, how prevalent are these types of reading struggles? Very. Um Dyslexia is actually the most common of all um, neurocognitive disorders. It is 20% of the population, so one in five people has some variation of dyslexia, and it is on a spectrum. So some have a more moderate case and some have a more profound case, but um, but it is very prevalent. Uh, dyslexia represents 80 to 90% of all learning disabilities, so it's definitely the, the most common learning disability out there. So... Um, yeah, it's, and, and many are undiagnosed, which is actually, to me, the most uh, sad part of all of this because 
again, like I said, that diagnosis in some ways just allows you to understand dyslexia more and it allows you to not um, put it on your intelligence. And so often, and with all these kids who are undiagnosed, they're just struggling every single day at school thinking that it's because they're not smart. And that's the part that really motivates me a lot of the time to do the work that we do with Klein because um, it, that is devastating to me to think of these kids at school thinking that they just have nothing to offer um, when and that couldn't be further from the truth. Wow. And that's, well, I, that is shocking that 20% of the population, that's, that's a huge amount of people. So it's definitely something to be on the lookout for as a parent, just to be kind of in the know yeah. Um, about what to look for. And, and I also didn't know, um, that it was on a scale so that, yes. that, uh, you could have mild to moderate to severe forms. So that is something new that I just learned right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, knowing that, that it is so prevalent, what are the kind of early signs that parents might be on the lookout for in their own children? So, um, Dyslexia is a language-based disorder. So uh, the first sign, the very first sign you can look out for is a delay in speech. Um, and not all delays in speech mean dyslexia, but it is the first sign that you can look out for. Um, and if you have it, if it runs in your family, again, if you know someone in your family who has had these kinds of struggles and then your child has a delay in speech, those two things together are something that just should just raise your awareness and just watch them. And then as you watch them, you look out for things like in pre-K, are they naming their letters correctly? And is it pretty fluid for them? Um, and then in kindergarten and in pre-K too, are in particular, are they naming their sounds? So, uh, does what sound does B make? And they should be able to say B. And um, what sound does F make? And they should be able to say F. So they need to be able to connect those sounds to those letters. That's huge for dyslexics. Another thing that you can look out for in preschool is trouble with rhyming. And my kids actually didn't have this issue, but a lot of kids have trouble connecting those rhyming sounds um, when they're dyslexic. So that's another sign. Um, and often people think that reversals is a sign, but reversals are totally normal for children up until about seven or eight years old. And then after eight, it's, it can be a sign of dyslexia for sure. And that was definitely a sign for my kids. Um, my kids basically reverse the entire alphabet and let, and numbers as well. So, um, that's, a, that can be a sign after eight. Um, parents are almost always the first to see the signs. And sometimes the professionals will say, Oh no, just wait, you know, you might, they, it might be, something else and you don't know and we can't diagnose yet. And I would just urge parents to listen to their own intuition and to get the answers that they need if they feel like something's amiss or something's wrong. Um, there's a great list of signs uh, dyslexia for dyslexia on the Yale Center for Dyslexia site. Um, so if you just go to the Yale Center for Dyslexia and you look up uh, the signs for dyslexia, it'll it's a great list. Oh, and I um, can link to that in the show notes too. So. Yes. Okay, great. And then the other thing I'd say is, um, is that I would look out for the positive attributes as well. So you almost, you want the, you want the deficits. You, I mean, you don't want them, but you want to look out for the deficits, but you also want to look out for them in conjunction with some, um, aspects that also go along with dyslexia, like creativity or being a great, um, artist or, um, being, um, 
kind of further along than your peers, maybe at building with blocks or with Legos. Um, they're spatially oriented often. So they have this great, uh, they can build Legos like you can't even believe. And then, um, another thing is kind of a higher empathy or a higher wisdom and problem solving. Uh, those things, uh, go hand in hand with dyslexia as well. So if you have those positive attributes with some of the deficits, that definitely is an indication that you should maybe, uh, seek an evaluation. That's so interesting. And I love that you're kind of, uh, it's, the way that you're speaking about it, I think is really interesting that, uh, I mean, we are trained just to think of it as a deficit or you're having a problem with reading, but it really has maybe more to do with your brain and areas of strength versus area of weakness. So I love that the signs can also be these really amazing things as well as maybe some red flags. Yes, yes, for sure. And if you think about it, all the, there's so many uh, dis- famous dyslexics that we've that we hear about, uh, you know, Einstein and Schwab and Branson and um, Steven Spielberg and um, there's so many people that are, that are just brilliant that have gone before us and uh, and so it does lend itself to some really amazing attributes as well as obviously some difficult ones. So. Right. Well, and we, I mean, everybody needs to be able to read and learn to read yes. and maybe hopefully love to read. And so obviously those, that makes those things a little bit harder. So what, if you're noticing some of these signs, are there interventions that parents can take, especially you had said that it's generally the parents that notice these things first. So are there interventions and how important is it to start those interventions maybe early? Yes. So, um, early is so important. Uh, and the intervention that is effective for kids with dyslexia is based in something called structured literacy. So it's really important that whatever tutoring or educational therapist, um, tutor or educational therapist you hire is trained in structured literacy. And there's different methodologies that offer, um, this kind of, um, uh, tutoring and it's, and some of them and the most common are Orton Gillingham, Wilson, Slingerland, Barton, and Linda Mood Bell. They're probably the most common methodologies that kind of enforce this structured literacy approach. Um, but basically structured literacy is breaking the language down, um, so into their components and understanding the literacy rules, um, that's really important for dyslexics. They don't learn the way a lot of schools teach, which is basically here's the book, here's the letters, you know, memorize the sounds and now put them together and string them into words. And here's a book and now read the book. It doesn't work for dyslexics. They really need it to be broken down further and further, um, and so that is critical that whatever intervention you use, that it is based in the structured literacy and, and early, the earlier, the better. And also that it's multisensory because these kids often need that multisensory learning. They need it to be auditory and visual and kinesthetic kind of in different ways at different times in different subjects, but, um, but they need that multisensory teaching as well. So one of, you had mentioned that usually the parents um, will kind of notice these things first, and then I'm assuming at some point maybe a teacher, but where would you even, if you're concerned and you want to get your child assessed, what 
what does seeking out a diagnosis look like? Is that you had mentioned that you had seen somebody to get an assessment, but is there a doctor involved? Like if you're concerned about your child, kind of what do you do? Okay. That's a great question. So, um, we went about it. You can go about it a handful of ways. Uh, we went about it by getting what's called a Slingerland assessment first, because psychological education evaluations or education evaluations, the ones that you get from either a neurologist or a psychologist, um, those are very expensive from five to $10,000 for one evaluation. And, uh, so we weren't ready to make that investment if we didn't know really what was going on. And so we wanted to get what's called a Slingerland first, because it it tells you whether the child has language processing difficulties, which basically is dyslexia, but it's not an official diagnosis of dyslexia. So anyway, we spent, I think it was $350 or $400 to get, it's gone up now, it's like under $500, but but to get our first daughter uh, assessed, and when they came back saying she absolutely has language processing difficulties, then we knew we needed to get a full psychiatric eval from a psychologist who, because with that full psychiatric eval, you can get accommodations at school, you can get the technology that you need at school in order to help them with the things that are harder for them. Um, so that's kind of, you, you have to seek out if someone in your area can do a Slingerland assessment and you want to go that route first, cause you're not quite sure. We liked that route because the other thing the Slingerland assessment does is it tells you a little bit about your child's learning style. So I mentioned multi-sensory earlier, but they, each person learns either auditory, auditorily or visually or kinesthetically or some combination of those. And the Slingerland assessment helps narrow that down for your child so you can study to their best learning style. Um, so we really like that, but, uh, but you can also go straight for the psych ed eval if that's the way you want to go. Well, and I think that, that sounds like a great plan for parents. Um, just a little bit about that needing the accommodations at school because we've both have some school experiences is, um, and actually we're going through a potential, we're getting one of my children evaluated right now for ADHD. And I was even telling my doctor, well, I'm not sure if I really need to go through the whole evaluation. And he kind of said, well, you're going to need to, if you want accommodations at school. So it, it, does it sound, do you need to have the specific diagnosis from a doctor, like doing like the full psych eval, like you had mentioned, in order to get your child on an education plan to get um, interventions at school? Yes. Yeah. And, and so the, so as I mentioned, the psych ed evals are very expensive. They do offer public, it, it's mandatory that public schools and offer, um, psych ed evals for free. The problem is sometimes they're not as thorough and not as um, well done as the private ones. So you might not get a diagnosis where you should have at times. I, I almost hate to throw that out because, but I've heard from many families who I've talked to that they've had to get double, they've had to get two because the first one that they got through the public school system was just kind of rushed through. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't as effective. Um, whereas the one, the private one, they don't have a, they don't have a stick in the game or whatever that expression yeah. is. So they, they just, it's very objective and they just go in and they give you exactly what you need. And, um, ours ended up being a good advocate for us. She came into the school and met with the teachers and said, this is absolutely what Natalie needs. And, um, 
for my oldest, she is severely reading impaired. And so she, um, she really needs those accommodations. It's critical for her. And so we needed, we needed that diagnosis in order to get those for her. All of them need them. All of the, all of, all of my kids need them. My youngest, my second grader, not yet so much, but my middle schoolers, they absolutely need books on tape or not books on tape. That's I'm aging myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, audio books because they just won't read. They can read. They just won't read as fast. So yeah. they can keep up with their peers. They couldn't keep up with their own intellectual abilities if they didn't have that access to the books on uh, to audio books. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I would still call it a book on tape and we have uh, a subscription to audible and my kids listen to it when they go to sleep at night, but I still call it a book on tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It will forever be a book on tape. Yeah. <laughs> And we will also forever rewind things, which, you know, like has nothing to do with actually winding anything these days, but anyway, <laughs> a totally different topic. Um, I wanted to say, ask one more question about kind of seeking out a diagnosis because I have a tendency just with my own children or myself to maybe put things off like, Oh, I noticed something's going on, but I'll just maybe call the doctor next week or next month or whatever. Is that, um, is that something you recommend or do you recommend kind of, if you notice a problem as soon as possible? And the reason why is because the younger brain is just so much more plastic than the older brain. So plasticity basically just means that the brain can like, modify its connections. It can rewire itself. And so, uh, it's so much more effective and it's so much of an easier road to evaluate and diagnose and intervene early because your, your child's brain is so much more malleable. It's able to make those changes. Um, it's not at all hopeless at, when they're older because often they call dyslexia the hidden disability, uh, because these kids are often bright and they can kind of hide what they're, you know, they can pretend like they're reading or they can, they can, they're verbal often too. So they can talk about something because they heard someone else talk about it, but they didn't necessarily read the book or those kinds of things. So they can, they can brush it aside and they can fool people. Um, but, uh, it is so critical that it is. So, but if it, if your child's older, it's not hopeless. It can still definitely, uh, help and they can learn to read and it's not a hopeless situation, but it's so much easier when they're younger. So I would just urge anyone, my son, we, um, knew very early on in preschool and we started tutoring, uh, with his educational therapist when he was before kindergarten and his progress has been dramatic. He's still, you're never going to outgrow it. You're, if you're dyslexic, you're going to be dyslexic for the rest of your life. He's never going to maybe read very fast, but he has come, he's so much further along than my girls. He's not stressed about spelling tests on, on his Fridays at all. He's not stressed about doing his homework at all. He does his homework so much more independently than both of my daughters did. And we, we intervened with them in first grade. So it's not like it was late, but it just made a huge difference to do it before kindergarten. All right. That's good advice. Well, what if, when you get this diagnosis then, and you'd mentioned tutoring, but, um, so it sounds like that would be something that you should do. What, what happens when you get the diagnosis? What's next? What do you do with it? So, um, getting a tutor is really important. And again, a tutor who's trained in those methodologies we talked about before that structured literacy approach. Um, that's really important and doing it 
if they're young as often as possible. So I'd say a minimum of two days a week, but hopefully three or four. Um, and then I only did two all I'm, I'm, cause I was like, I want them to be a child. And, um, I have mixed emotions about that. Sometimes I wonder if three or four would have been better for them. Um, one of my, my oldest did go to a special, the specialized school for kids with dyslexia for three years. Um, anyway, but tutoring is the first uh, step. And then the other step is just a changing of the way you deal with your children. And I actually think, um, what, a, this, which is called growth mindset is beneficial for all children, regardless of a uh, learning difference or anything instilling in your child that you don't know something yet, or that challenges are good or that failure is good because you need to learn from it. And that growth mindset is critical for kids because school's hard and school's hard for kids, whether they're in whether they have challenges or whether they don't. So understanding what you say as a parent and um, your talk track and what, how you talk about your own challenges and, and knowing that your kids listen to you all the time is really important. So, um, you know, sending the message that effort matters, that praise for effort and that using good strategies and progress is what matters and hard work and persistence and all those things, that's, that's, something that we focus on heavily in our house. We don't, we don't focus on the grade as much as we focus on the process and the work that was put behind it. And as long as they try their hardest, that's what we praise. And we have, you know, we don't give, you know, dollars for A's. We give, we don't give dollars, but we don't get, you know, we give it for, you know, how much, how hard did you try? I love that. And I think that that is so hard in school today because, I mean, at least I know that my son's school, he, he struggles with spelling. Maybe I need to get him assessed, my middle son. Um, he's always struggled with spelling, but he's come so far in his spelling tests that, and so he'll have a list of, you know, 18 words. He's in fourth grade and he might get 11 of them right, but the ones that he didn't get right, he may only miss one letter, you know, but that's yeah. just not the way... And, and he'll get a D. And I keep saying, like, you've come so far. You did so great. You got so much of this word right. <laughs> because yeah. we yeah. can see that at home. And and he doesn't feel that sort of value at school because he just got to see. Right, right. I think it's so important because I do think school, and especially the pressure the kids are under these days, it's immense. And, um, the amount of work, I don't know, all schools are different, but my kids have, especially middle schoolers have a ton of work and projects. And so if they can get it all done to the best of their ability and they can learn a, a good work ethic, I think that's, you know, it worth its weight in gold. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit more, kind of continue down this path, assuming that you have that you have dyslexia or you've got a child with dyslexia and you're living with it. I'd like to just kind of talk a little bit more about that. So are there some things that um, as parents uh, that we kind of keep to ourselves? So I want to talk about kind of like the stigma of it maybe, you know, there's so many things yeah. I think that you kind of, push under the rug and and I feel like that this might be one of them and I'm wondering if that's something that parents should be the do, should do or if they should kind of say like hey yeah be pr not proud you know necessarily it's not the right language but something that there should be no shame around and they should f freely kind of express to other people 
Absolutely. So I actually think this is one of the problems is that, um, is not naming it. I think it's so important to just say the name, uh, because it, it does, like you said, it, it takes away the shame. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And by hiding it or by not naming it, you kind of send that message that there is something to be ashamed of. Um, so I think it's so important to say the name, uh, to understand it and to understand it's again, not your intelligence and it's not a problem with how smart you are. It's just a different wiring in your brain that makes reading and writing and spelling hard for you, but it also has these other great things. So that's kind of the talk track, but interestingly, they did a longitudinal study in Pasadena, um, with a school that, um, is similar to the school that my daughter went to. Um, it's a school specializing for kids with dyslexia and, um, they followed these kids for 30 years and they wanted to discover what are the attributes that make a successful dyslexic. And so by successful, they didn't mean, you know, rich. They meant how fulfilled are you in your life and how happy are you? And interestingly, I thought what they found out is that the two biggest, most important things were awareness and acceptance. So being aware that you have this difficulty. I mean, you can't hide from the fact that it's hard for you to read, especially in elementary school. So you're reminded of it every single day, every minute of every single day in school when you're in K through fifth grade and probably more than that. Um, and so you can't hide from it. So you need to accept and understand it know that, yeah, that is hard for me. And I know that, but it's okay because it, I, I know that that part's hard, but that I have these other things that are, that are good too. Um, and that my brain's not broken, that it's just that it's that particular thing is hard for me. And then also acceptance, just yes, it's okay. Again, like it's okay. I can, I can still be successful in my life. I just need to use my resources, my accommodations, and I need to work hard at this thing that is very hard for me. Well, and a little bit, can we add add a little bit to that for me? Because I think those are, those are super, that's probably great advice for anybody with whatever they're dealing with, but especially yeah. with somebody, I, I liked that you said you cannot escape this, especially in school and, and how that you might be reminded of it or are definitely reminded of it every day. I thought that was really powerful, but be, due to that, I can imagine that it might add some additional stress to students or kind of create a lack of self-confidence. Is that, is that something that that you find with people that you work with? It's huge. It's huge, huge, huge. It's like the biggest thing for me is that confidence or shame. It's, uh, the most important part of all of this for me, uh, because again, these kids intellectually and academically, they're going to be okay if they can hold on and preserve their confidence. Um, so if, but if they grow up feeling inadequate, it's going to be so much harder for them to preserve that potential of theirs. So, um, not to get too psychological, but there is a really renowned psychologist called Eric Erickson, and he talks about the eight stages of psychosocial development. And, um, he said that the ages from five to 12 is the, is the stage of industry versus inferiority. Um, so in those years, you're gaining your self-concept, and the way you gain that is through comparing yourself to your peers. Interestingly, this is the exact same age that is most difficult for dyslexics. So from 
kindergarten to about sixth grade is typically the time where you learn to read and then you're learning from reading and then they're focusing so much on spelling and so much on learning to write. And those are all the things that are so incredibly, and math facts, rote memorization, all those things are the things that are most difficult for dyslexics. So the reason dyslexia is so shaming and so shameful for people when they don't know is because they're constantly comparing themselves to their peers. And that comparison is what forms how they feel about themselves. And that comparison is always negative. They're always falling behind. They're always failing. You know, they're never the success story. So unless they have some incredible athletic talent or incredible artistic talent or a theatrical or something that helps them with their confidence, if they don't know that they're dyslexic and that's why those things are hard for them, they're, they're just, it's, it destroys their self-concept and it's really hard to, um, you know, gain that back because it gets pretty cemented. So I don't mean to be an alarmist, but it's just so important that, that we seek answers for these kids because having them float around, not knowing why this, all this is so hard for them all the time is, is pretty, is very brutal for them. It's well, how can parents help out for that? Cause it does sound pretty brutal. Yeah. So what can we yeah. do as parents to help support? Um, so just wa- just watching them. And a lot of it too is, um, is their own reaction. The kid knows too. So, you know, watching them, seeing again, those early signs, are they having trouble with their sounds? Are they having trouble with early reading? Uh, You know, and if those things are in conjunction with some of the positive things, and also if they're emotionally distraught, if there's, if they know if they, and some kids talk to their parents more than other kids do. I was lucky in that my oldest was so transparent. I mean, she waved a red flag in front of my face a million times. And I was like, okay, we need to do something about this. If it had been my second uh, child who had gone first, I think it would have taken me a lot longer to get the diagnosis because she's just much more reserved and she just kind of puts her head down and keeps trying. But I would just say trying to be aware, trying to ask the questions, trying to talk to the teachers because teachers are getting more aware too of dyslexia because it is so prevalent. Um, we still have a long way to go, but they are getting more aware. So I would talk to the teachers and just say, you know, she's doing homework for an hour to two hours a night. Is that normal? Especially considering the output was a C or whatever, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So those kinds of things, just watching and, and yeah, observing your child as much as you possibly can in communication with your community, which is, uh, their teachers. Well, and I know outside of school, I know that you at Climb offer a literacy mentor program. Can you tell uh, tell listeners a little bit more about that so that they can seek maybe you out or, or something similar in their neck of the woods? Yeah, so um, this is the newest part of Climb, and I'm so excited about it. It's been uh, about a year and a half, two years uh, that we've been running these programs, and it is called Keep Climbing, and it's a mentor-based literacy program. Uh, we partnered with an educational therapist who creates lesson plans uh, and then trains high school mentors uh, on these structured literacy lessons. So then, and then we pair the high school mentors with little ones. So we pair them with kindergarten through third graders one-on-one, and they teach them in different stages wherever the child is 
we assess them and then wherever the child is, they start their literacy lesson, their structured literacy lesson, and then they one-on-one practice reading with them and practice these structured literacy lessons with them. Um, and throughout it all, and one very important aspect, um, I think, I, I don't know if I mentioned yet, but the tutoring is incredibly expensive. So this, these educational therapists or tutors who are trained in structured literacy, um, in the Bay area, they charge anywhere from 100 to $200 an hour. And you're timesing that by two to four days a week. And it adds up and it becomes cost prohibitive for many, many families. So one of the things we wanted to do was make it accessible. And the way we did that was we use, um, high school mentors who need volunteer hours and they get trained and then they one-on-one teach, um, these little ones in these lessons. Um, so it's individualized one-on-one tutoring and it's cost effective. And, um, the other aspect we use is we implement this growth mindset throughout the lesson. So we focus a lot on failure is good. It helps you learn. Challenges are good. We want to challenge ourselves. Um, and so that's always an underlying support throughout the uh, program. Um, I think that that's great. That's awesome that you've kind of figured out a way to help families that need help and also are bearing that cost in mind because that sounds like it could be quite a burden to families. Well, how else can parents who don't have sort of uh, uh, the therapist at their fingertips or maybe not yet or maybe are trying to reduce cost and and use less therapy and, and provide more assistance themselves, are there things that parents can do to support reading growth at home? Yes, for sure. So um, one of the things parents can do is, well, in terms of reading, I would say just read to or with your child as much as possible. So some children, again, if they are profoundly dyslexic, they're not going to want to read. So read to them because the at the end of the day, whether it's an audiobook or whether it's uh, them reading to themselves, it's about content and it's about knowledge. And dyslexic kids, another disadvantage they have is they lose so much content because they can't read as fast or as well or at all. So they lose so much information, so much life's information um, that they would gain through that their peers are gaining through these books. Um, so read to them or, or show them how to listen to audiobooks and um, have them like you do with your boys to so have them listen to a book before they go to sleep at night. I do that with my girls too. It's awesome. They listen to a book every night before they go to sleep. Um, and they get so much content that way. And they also get the cadence of a writer. So a lot of famous authors are dyslexic, even though that sounds so funny, but understanding and listening to books can really help with their writing skills as well. Um, so listening to those books, making stories and reading a positive story in their life. So not, you know, torturing them with them having to sound out words so slowly, but just reading to them or using audiobooks, or if they want to read, let them read to you as much as possible. The other really important thing that parents can do is again, just praising that effort, using a growth mindset, um, and I think we can tag some, um, add some resources at the end to, to a growth mindset, uh, ways of thinking and how to teach your kids a growth mindset as well. Um, and just noticing their talents, if they are a really talented athlete, or if they are really empathetic, or if they're a great helper, just when they do good things, notice them, you know, it obviously needs to be genuine. Don't just throw out compliments for no reason, but there's plenty to look at in terms of strengths beyond school. So if they're 
doing a great job helping their brother or if they're doing a great job, you know, um, in, again, in sports or in art or in theater, notice that and give heap, heap the compliments. <laughs> I like that. And I, I love to mentioning beyond school. I feel like that's come up a couple of times now recently with the show and just that, I, I think as parents that we put so much pressure on school, but that there's so much beyond school that, you know, that their mental well-being is, is hugely important, that there's, there's value beyond like book learning. And so I love that you said that. Yeah, I think it's so important. Well, let's talk, you mentioned recommend um, resources. So let's go ahead and talk about some resources for parents who are looking to help their child with reading or understand dyslexia. Um, What resources can you recommend? So an absolutely fantastic, my favorite website out there um, for kids with all sorts of learning, I would actually even argue it has great resources for kids who don't have learning differences, is called understood.org. And it is primarily for kids who have learning differences, but it's um, it's just got such a wealth of knowledge, so many uh, areas where you can, da- you can download graphic organizers for all sorts of things to help kids organize their writing. There's so much resource information on there about audiobooks and and what to do if you can search anything in that website and it will come up with some great um, tutorials for you. So understood.org is definitely a huge one. Um, you can go to my website if you're interested in talking more about dyslexia and um, getting some personal advice. Um, it's climbconsulting.com. Uh, International Dyslexia Association is a great resource. Um, and then technology accommodations and support like Audible and Learning Ally. Learning Ally, so Audible, I think everyone knows is, is audiobooks. Um, Learning Ally is fantastic because it has textbooks on audio. So you, you have to have a print disability, so either blind or dyslexic basically, to get access to Learning Ally, but you just present your um, diagnosis to them uh, online and then they accept you into their site and you pay a small fee and you get unlimited free books. Some are free reading books, you know, novels, and then some are textbooks. So all my girls, or my girl, my two girls have, um, have all their textbooks on audio. Uh, and then things like natural reader, which is what you could copy and paste either a word doc or a, uh, website or anything into natural reader and it will read it for you. So my girls, when they're doing research, they can, go in and copy and paste anything they want or upload a URL and it will read it in a computerized voice, which isn't the best, but it's fine. They can get, they can get the content. Well, and that, I mean, that's great that there is so many, um, that, that technology can make such a difference today. It's huge. It's huge. Cause again, you want your kids to, I, I'm not someone who needs my kids to get straight age. I just want them to be able to compete at their intellectual ability. So if they can get it, a, a B or an A or whatever, I want them to be able to have access to that. And if they, it weren't for these technologies, they, they would just be much slower. So they wouldn't have access to that. It allows them the speed. It Dyslexia, uh, Sally Shaywitz, who's like the guru of dyslexia, she, she says dyslexia robs a person of time. And it's so true. You know, you can learn to read, but you're probably never going to read as fast as, as your peers. 
And so using some of those technological components kind of gives you that time back because you're not taking so much time to have to, you can listen to it instead. Well, Lindsay, this has been so fabulous. There's so much great information, I think, in here, even for parents whose children, just just in helping to develop reading in general and and building kids with confidence. Um, How can listeners find out more uh, if they've got some questions um, so if they were interested in anything that I can offer, they can go to uh, www.climbconsulting.com. And CLIMB is spelled um, with a K because that's how a dyslexic would spell it. Um, <laughs> and and CLIMB, the, the name of my nonprofit came from a quote by Albert Einstein, who is said to be dyslexic, where he said, um, everybody's a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. Mm-hmm. So that's where climb came from. I but, love it. So anyway, it's www.climbwithakconsulting.com. Um, and obviously my contact information is on there and you can reach out to me with that. And if you live in the Bay area and you're interested in, um, your child getting affordable intervention, um, you know, obviously an educational therapist is going to be able to provide the paramount of tutoring. But if you want your child to have um, intervention that is based in growth mindset and that is cost effective and, um, and really a very positive experience for the kids, what I've loved so much about the mentor program is that both the high school mentors and the little ones come away with such uh, positivity. They come away feeling good about themselves. They come away feeling happy. And it's been better than I could have hoped in terms of that. So that's been really great. On a total side note, I was wondering if any of your high school uh, tutors happen to be dyslexic, because I think that would be like an amazing thing. You know that. what? <laughs> and when we were researching, when the educational therapist uh, for climate and I were researching this this how to kind of implement this program we did a lot of we read about a lot of buddy reading things and a lot of them are just kind of reading next to the child versus like these structured literacy lessons which is what we do but they but what was so cool is they did all this um these studies after them and they said the that the high schoolers got out as much as the little ones did and we have found that so much to be true. And yes, I, I have asked, we do, when we do our training, it's a two day, um, you know, two hours each day, but two day training. And one of the days is around growth mindset and their, um, confidence and encouraging that. And when we asked them, you know, why did you volunteer for this service project? I'd say more than half each time has said, you know, I struggled when I was growing up and it's really nice to be able to help others you know, in a way that I didn't get helped when I was young. So that's been super cool too. I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much. I think there's so much great information and and it's going to be a huge help to somebody who might be concerned. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes and all of the resources that we talked about on boysbuiltbetter.com. If you like the show, subscribe and leave us a review. Until next time.